scripting for newbies part five this is a little more than uh, newbie-ish because we've already discussed many things so I'm just kind of building upon what we've already learned um, but that doesn't mean that all of you have been here in fact half of you have not been here before so at least that I recognize and this is great um, glad to have you all with us I know we've got some visitors from Columbia right are you here for a specific reason or just a visit. Okay, great. Great to have you here. Um, anyone else from out of town? All right, I'll be here all night. So, um, okay. So let's pick up where we left off. And um, we were doing frying Shakespeare after frying bacon. So let me teach you a new, um, a new little um, filter program utility. Um, uh, you know, we start off with a shebang bin bash. That indicates that the rest of it is going to be interpreted by shell. Um, and uh, this little program it, it reads the, the head of Hamlet, three, Act 3, Scene 1, which uh, head, if you don't give any options otherwise, will do the first 10 lines. The head of the file, in other words. Um, then I can print an echo for a blank line. Um, then I'm going to do the head again, and then I'm going to pipe it, send the send it the output of head to the input of fold. Fold's a new program, a new filter that we're going to be doing that I'm going to be showing you. And what fold does is it, at the, at the width that you give it, it chops it off, puts it on the next line. Okay? This remainder, it, it wraps, basically. It's a, it's a line wrapper. Um, you can give it the, the double dash width equals 40. And with a lot of uh, new programs, um, it has two different formats. You can do use the dash W, the single letter, or you can use a double dash with a word. Um, for documentation purposes, this is better for for bash golf. This is less characters, less strokes. Right? So um, you'll see it both ways. Um, with this, uh, for the most for most programs, you can combine this, the uh, the dash single character options. Everybody understand what I'm saying? So if if um, if fold had like an I and a D and a T and an H option, and I just had a single one, single a dash here, then that would give me all five of these options with the H having a parameter 40. That's not what I'm doing here. I'm using the double dash with the word width. Did I just confuse everyone? No. Okay. So what this will do is um, it'll print out the 10 lines. Send it to standard out, fold it, reads, the standard, reads it as standard in, and chops it off at column 40, width 40. Then I'll print a new, another new line. I'll do uh, ahead of Hamlet again, the first 10 lines, and send that to another program called Format. What that does is similar to fold, where fold takes and just chops it off and wraps it to the next line. Format actually takes it to a, a word boundary and nicely wraps it and then brings the next line up and then formats that and continues formatting that way. Does that make sense? 
it'd make more sense if I showed it to you. So let me execute this right quick. So, you see right here, if you remember, I just, uh, this first part is just um, uh, the top 10 lines of Hamlet Act 3, scene 1. And this is column 40. So, you see what um, Fold did is it chopped off question to, to be questio and put an end colon on the next line. Then the next line it did, whether it's no in the mind to suffer. And then puts R on the next line. The slings and arrows of the outrageous fort. And then Ood on the next line. So you see it, it just it just wrapped it and chopped it off and wrapped it. Alright, makes sense? Now, format, which is what I use on practically a daily basis because I have a, a little uh, I use Vim and so you can use any you can send a line or a block or, or an entire file through uh, any other program like a like a uh, filter. And I usually do uh, I, I usually send it to format. So I say, you know, my, my page is 75 columns wide, and, you know, I've been typing, and it wraps around. Okay, that looks ugly. Pipe it to format, and it makes it look nicer. So what it does is it took the word to be or not to be, that is the, and then took question, put it on the next line, and then brought up the, the other line, brought it up, whether it's another in the, and you see it's right there. Mind Go over here. Mine suffer the slings and arrows. Am I over explaining it? You, you got it, right? Makes sense. So whenever I was um, writing this little program to do format, and last month we did paste, uh, where you can take a file and uh, another file, and you can put it right side by side, I thought, hey, you know what we could do? Is we could make uh, take a text file and make it like newsprint. So you have two columns, right? Not, not a lot of uh, usefulness to it, but I thought it would be cool. So I wrote this little program that is the little handouts that I got here. If, uh, if you want to pass it around. Um, you can have more than one copy. If you want to take that column. So, um, let's see. Uh, newsprint. Okay, it's a long program. So let me just do... Uh, First couple lines. Where is it? Okay. So I'm on the head of newsprint. Start off, it's running bash. Okay? Got a comment. This is just to tell me what this program does. It makes the a file read like a newspaper in other words in two columns. Um, this is the things I'm introducing today. Um, a comment for me to do at a later point if I ever want to make this a more improved program. Because you know, I, I need to read newsprint like articles on my, my prompt, right? So, um, okay, first thing I do is I take a variable called debug and I set it to either true or false. I commented out false because I don't want to do false right now. Right now, I do want to use debugging. That's just something that I created called debug. I'm setting it to true. See what it does? Let me do that. Let me run it and see what it does. So if I give it 
<laughs> or, or would you rather go through it and know what it does and then say, hey, it did it, or would you rather see what it does and, and then analyze it that way? We can't wait. Go ahead, Mike. All right. Print. Okay, what's the file name? Hamlet 3.1. What is the number of columns on this screen? Well, let's see, I think it's probably an 80-column screen. I know it's not, but I'm going to say that. What is the number of lines on the screen? We'll say 30. And there we go, hot dog. Well, it's not perfect. This should be over here, but it's close enough, right? That's uh, something we need to debug later on. I'm not going to worry about it. So you see what it did? To be or not to be, that is the question, whether it is no book in. The mind just with the same slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, blah, 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 blah. The undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns puzzles the will and makes the rather <coughs> makes us rather bear those ills. So you got what I'm doing, right? I took the file. I made it smaller. I chopped it off. I put it over here and pasted those together. Alright? Is that cool or what? Is that awesome? Is everyone going to use this program now that they have a printout of it? No, Jace, you're fooling yourself. Okay, so the first line we did, um, if I've got a parameter, um, if I don't have a parameter, right, because if number one is the first parameter to the, arc, to the program that I give it, um, if this is, is nothing, then I need to ask, ah, here's a new program called read. What read does is uh, it asks, it prompts you and puts into a variable what you, what you give it. So you saw me run the X, run it and say, what is the file? It asked me, what, what is the file name? And I typed in Hamlet 3.1. Um, the dash P is the prompt right here, the prompt um, parameter. So you can give it a prompt. Uh, or otherwise, you don't have to have re, uh, a dash P in there, and it'll just, you, you just type in something whenever it stops, right? So I'm gonna, what I put in is put into the, the um, variable that I call file. Now notice this does not start with dollar sign, right? This is a parameter that I'm initializing, that I'm uh, not initializing, but that I'm assigning to clear, okay? So now what happens if I, See, that's, that's what happens if, uh, if dollar sign one is, is nothing, is empty, right? Because then that would match right here. What if I did it? What would happen then? Anyone? First argument. First argument. So if I rerun this program and I give it an argument and say Hamlet 3.1 without the G and then ask me the columns, the number of lines, does and then it does it, right? So, so this time, dollar sign one gets put into file, right? Oh, y'all have a printout, right? So, I need a printout. All right, so what that did is it did it and put it in the file in both cases, right? Any questions so far? Now, this is a newbie session. If you're new to shell scripting in any form and any of this doesn't make sense, tell me, okay? Right. <laughs> okay. Uh, then we need to verify the file with something to do later on. All right, now here's something new that we haven't learned yet in our shell scripting sessions. 
um, and that is the back quotes or the dollar sign paren paren. All right. So what that does? What does that do? Does anyone know? Any newbies not? Any newbies know what this does? Any newbies? Are there any newbies to Shellscript? Do you have any idea what it might do? Okay. Anyone else? Okay. Well, what it does is whatever you have inside the back quotes, it will execute that and the standard out of that, yeah, the output of that will be put into whatever you use. I mean, it'll be put in its place. Command substitution. As substitution. Command substitution. Yes, that's what it's called. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Rick. <laughs> so, like, what I did right here is um, I've got this um, wc-l file, right? So what this would do is this would do a word count, count the number of lines for file, right? Uh, which is assigned up here, either from the command line or whenever it's prompting me. So this would do a, it would count the number of lines in this file. And instead of, uh, and it would substitute that number into lines underscore file, right? Does that make sense? Well, it turns out that the WC command, whenever you give it a, a file as one of the parameters, it also puts the file name in there. That's not what I wanted, so I've said, nope, that's not what I want. Alternatively, you could do, use the cat, uh, cat the file, pipe it to WC with the dash L, and that will give you what you want. Right? Um, but I didn't like that for whatever reason. And then here's another command substitution in bash is the dollar sign print for in. It does the same thing as the back quotes, but does anyone know why you would not use it or would you require you would use the back quotes and not area? <laughs> I would imagine it has something to do with escaping. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess it could. Escaping. Uh, yeah. What do you, explain further what you mean. Um, I just know that most of the problems I've ever had with Bash have to do with escaping. Yeah, you've got single quotes and double quotes that are, or, or backs, um, backslash quotes that, um, um, I suppose, I, I can't think off the top of my head, but I imagine there's probably, yes. Um, like if you had something in your, uh, uh, in what you were trying to do that had a back quote that you have a problem with that. Yeah. So any other anyone think of any other reason why you'd use the dollar sign print print instead of the backslash? Non forking. Uh, what's that? Non forking. Non forking? Is it? I didn't know that. That's awesome. It's non forking. I didn't know that. That's cool. Well that's a that's a good reason to use it. See, you know, you teach and you learn, too. How about that? That's cool. Well, what were you going to say? Well, anyone else have any other <laughs> Before I reveal my reason? That's a good reason, I didn't realize. Anyone else? Anyone? All right, well, um, with this uh, this sort of nomenclature, you can, you can nest. So you could put, um, you know, if you don't know what file is, you could, you, you could say uh, dollar sign paren echo file paren and the output of that would be file, which, you know, that's kind of dumb to do it here, but you see what I'm saying? You can do that inside of this dollar sign print print, and you can nest more dollar sign print prints inside of that. If you do it with this, the, the back tick, 
you it'll it'll go to the first back ticket sees and do that part, and then the next part it thinks is a is a command, and then the next part is something to execute. So you can't nest them, or if you do, you have to do multiple variables or something else. Something, something. Now um, the back ticks are, are are bash. I'm sorry. They're born, they are inherited from born. So if you're trying to get something that lives on most platforms, then you're going to want to use this nomenclature. But Bash is also on a lot of platforms. So if you can, use it this way. And especially since it's non forking. I, I don't know. You'll have to ask Trace. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot. I just thank you. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Eric. <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna now I'm introducing. Does everyone understand then command substitution? Got it. Cool. All right, so now redirecting. Last month we we discussed um, sending to an output using the greater than symbol. Now using the less than symbol, which is its, it's um, complement, um, uh, you can get file to be the input of this. So it's essentially the same as this. You see, I got wc l file. Um, whereas this one I'm doing wc-l less than gosh file, this is the standard input gets sent to here and then prints it out. So whereas this one will give me the number of lines and the file name, this one will just give me the number of lines because it doesn't know what the file name is because it's standard in as far as it cares. Same with this one. Make sense? Redirect standard in. Is there any um, is there any advantage to uh, Using their redirect in rather than catting piping in, is there uh, perhaps a, a forking uh, issue when you when you issue the pipe? Does it actually fork that? And it doesn't do it with probably. Yeah, yeah. Pipe. I mean, you've got a program running here. You send it standard out to this standard in, whereas this you just I don't know. But if you're writing Bash or shell scripts, you're not interested in speed necessarily. Right. <laughs> so. Um, you should write a, you should write a command optimizer you, and add it in the batch or something. Yeah, so hey, like that yeah. yeah. They did that for Perl, right? So you can do it. Yeah. Alright, so alright. Everybody got it? Moving on. So now we got uh, if test uh, x true equals x dollar sign debug. If you remember dollar sign debug is set up here. So if debug is true, if these two are the same. Then this returns a true, which is what? Anyone? <laughs> that would be a boolean. A boolean, which is the, the return value from test uh, is zero. zero. Right, because that means zero errors. Zero errors, right? All right, so now notice, did I discuss this one time, the difference between the double bracket test and the single bracket test? Does everyone know? Does everyone care? You. You have an opinion one way or the other. I, I would like to know what the difference is. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have an opinion. I can share it, but I have one. Okay. Um, yeah, so the, the single bracket test is the test program, which is in your bin directory, uh, your binary directory. And so this will fork test, and test will run this. Whereas the double bracket is a bash built-in, forks. I don't think it forks, so it's going to be because it's a built-in bash. It's going to be running a little faster. The one thing you got to be aware of is that these two are slightly different. Um, I think, if I remember correctly. So whereas this one understands the equal to be 
is equal to. Um, it also understands a double equal to be is equal to, right? And instead of the equal meaning assigned to be. But so, okay, so so that's the, um, the, other, the other test, the bash built-in test. All right, so if um, debug is true, um, then echo the file file has lines file lines, all right? You understand why I've got the braces here? Now, you don't. Okay, last month you asked. You understand yeah. the reason why? Well, yeah, somewhat. See now, right here, I've got. Uh, well, see, later on, I'm going to be using a variable called line lines. If I use the dollar sign lines by reading it, I'm not sure whether I'm going to have the value of lines with the underscore file appended to the end of, or whether it's going to do. Lines file. Right. So now that I've got braces around it, I know for sure which one it's going to be. And so does interpreter. So I got this first line of the file. The file has lines file lines. Alright? Cool? Everybody cool? Uh, let's go 50. Now. Alright, I'm lazy. I just didn't want to type what is the number of three times. So I just put I just create a variable that says, well, what is the number of, right? Just a variable. Now, if test um, x equals columns x, this is uh, one of the other ways to do test. Uh, and understand I'm, I'm doing this with multiple ways that you'll see it. So some people will prefer test, some people will prefer double brackets, some people will prefer single brackets. This is the same as this one. This is the built-in test, right? Um, test will fork and then do its test. Now the difference you, need, you also need to be aware of is double brackets expects double brackets at the end. Single brackets expects single brackets at the end. Test doesn't care. Doesn't have anything out there. Yeah. Um, as far as I know, bash has no problem with these strings, so why do you need to use your X there? Um, I mean, I, I test any strings all the time, but it's great. You can, you can do that. However, if uh, you're talking about using the dash um, Z option to test? No, no, it's just, you know, you can do, um, you can do, say, empty quote. Empty quote? Yeah, and you can say equal equal and do the test that way. Um, you don't have to throw an extra character in there to protect against empty variables. Oh, okay. Well, I've always seen this hack, and it's, it's kind of a good thing because that way, I mean, if that works, that works, right? Um, I, I've always understood that if, I used to know if there if, was some nuance that I was missing. Um, well, the thing is, is it with the variable not being assigned, if memory serves me correctly. Yes. Yeah, if columns, if I didn't have the X here and columns were unsigned, then this would be if test quote if equals string equals null. And it would say, where's the, you know, where's A equals expects a second operand. So there's right. no And I think that I think the actual quotes protect against that. If you do it the other way and just not quote it, and just stick yeah, there, like, like get that problem. Okay. I think the quotes protect you against that. Okay. Well, then do that by all means. If if I did it here, you mean? If I took the X off, yeah, that would that would definitely. If the uh, is not been assigned ever, then this would fail because equals expects a right and left. And if this has never been assigned, there's nothing there. So you're saying the quotes would protect it, but not necessarily the correct. Right. Right. If you, if right. you don't have the quotes around it, then it won't protect you against that problem. Yeah. Okay. I just I just do it all the time anyway. 
It's a hack that you see. You mean you don't initialize all your variables? <laughs> what kind of language is this? Well, now see, sometimes you use environment variables, and you go on a different distribution, and the environment variable doesn't exist. So you get that wrong. But okay. All right, so where am I at? Am I right here? What? Okay, test columns, then echo what? What is the number of columns on this screen? And then I didn't put an, I didn't put this in quotes, and I put a dash in. So you want to know what the dash in to echo means? Yes, sir. Does not print a new line at the end. Does not print a new line at the end. So then this part gets done immediately. So, um, but in, I commented that out and then add this single quote space single quote. Does anyone know why I did that? What on earth am I thinking? What, Jason? What's wrong with you? Yes, gives you a space at the end of your line. There you go. Exactly right. Gives you a space at the end of your line. Now, see, this is um, using the echo with a dash in and something and then a read comes is essentially the same as read with a dash prompt, right? It's just a different way of doing it. You'll see it both ways. All right, so then I did the same thing here. Test lines is equal to x, and there I use the double equals. For test. Huh. So test do you understand the double equals? Okay, so anyway, um, read prompt, what is the number of lines on the screen? Puts it into lines. This puts it in columns. Okay. Now we've got if debug. Now wait a second. Wait a second, Jace, you say. Up here but before, I've got if test x true equals x dash and debug for my test. Now right here I've got if just debug. Now what am I doing here? Does anyone know? Why, why am I doing it differently here and here? No one? Alright, so if you remember at the beginning, debug, I set to true. It turns out true is a, is a program. True is a program that returns zero as its, as its exit code, which means no error. Right? True returns true. No error. False, on the other hand, is another program, it's complement, that correctly exits one. It correctly exits error. Does that make sense? So if I were to set debug to false, um, if false, which would be one, if would skip here, right? So I'm just using the, the true and false program, and just uh, whether it's true, if it's true, then I echo call equals columns, lin equals lin lines, just for debug purposes, right? Does that make sense? Everybody, everybody lost? Kevin? Yeah, very much. What? Very much so. Very much so? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm half following it. Okay, all right. Did you get a printout? You got a printout. I did, I got it. Okay. All right. Um, how many columns would you like to file to be in? All right, that's a future thing I thought about. For now, I'm just going to do two. You know, whenever you, whenever you write a program, you say, hey, wouldn't it be cool to have this and that and the other? So I'm just going to put that in there later. Not like I'm going to throw this away after, you know, I'm done with this, this session. All right, so now we've got here, I'm setting width based on, oh, I'm sorry, want columns to be two. All right, so it's just a variable that I set. Um, otherwise, I, would, I was going to... Uh, prompt the user, how many do you want? And then, then there would be one column. So if you wanted a three-column newsprint, right? Uh, or whatever. Okay. So now I'm using, 
I'm creating a um, variable called width, and I'm setting it to, well, now what is all this? Has anybody seen any of this stuff before? You've got the dollar sign, paren, paren, blah, 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 paren, paren, all right? So you would think that where I just taught you that dollar sign, paren, paren, is to substitute the command and put it into there. This one's different. Uh, $parent does mathematical calculations. So I'm putting in columns divided by one columns minus two. Is that going to be integer based? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Integer based. Um, I think uh, because there was some confusion, this is my supposition. I have no basis for fact on this, but I'm guessing that because $parent means command substitution, that they also added this dollar sign bracket. So uh, dollar sign bracket does the same thing. So if you want to do math uh, in the shell, you just use either dollar sign print print, print print, and dollar sign bracket. And again, like you said, it's integer math. It's uh, uh, basically what, you, what you're probably used to seeing. All right, so next line I've got um, dollar sign debug and and echo call width equals dollar sign width. Wait a second. Ampersand ampersand is new. Anybody have any idea what ampersand ampersand does? Having looked at something similar to this in other programming languages, perhaps? Or know what the word ampersand is usually substituted to mean? Logically. And. <laughs> it's an and. That's right. So this is a logical and. What did you say? Both have to be true. Both have to be true. No. That's not right. So, where I, um, does everyone understand what a logical and is? Do I need to explain that? Newbies? Sure. You know, you know what it means? You want me to explain? Yeah. Okay. A logical and, a logical and takes two, two things, right? Um, it's a truth table. Should I do a truth table? Boy, who are the True and false. Sorry. This is the way I write it. I don't Everyone understands. True and false. True and false. Alright, so true and true. True. It's true, exactly. True and false. It's false, right? False and true. It is false. False and false. It is also false. Yeah. So this is your truth table. So you have two, two things, true and false. Now, um, like C and other programming languages that are based upon C, and I don't know, there's tons of languages that do this. The born ampersand is a short circuit. Does anyone know what that might mean? If the first command executes true, then the second command Right, and only if the first command then executes true. Because only when you have, well, if, if, it, if the first command returns false, you automatically know the answer. There's no sense in doing the second half, right? No, no sense in doing the second command. So that's the short circuit. If the first command is false, just go on. Don't do the rest of the line. If the first one's true, then you need to check if the second one is true or false. <laughs> Okay, so what I've got here is debug, which is true or false that I've set up at the beginning, 
true. Now it needs to test the second half. Echo call with equals with. You'll see this as a little hack. People shortcuts this um, to so they don't have to do the if then else, if then feed stuff. Um, it's just a shorthand for the most part. Uh, you got to be careful though. It's not exactly the same as uh, if then else. If you use the the, the complement to the ampersand ampersand and is the type type, which is bunch or. Um, so, and, and or is just the opposite. Let me do and. and then this is or. So true and false, true and false. And true or true is true. True or false is true. False or true is true. False or false is false. Does that make sense to everyone? Does anyone understand why that is? Exactly. Okay. Um, I have a shirt on, or I have pants on. True or false? True. I have a hat on, or I have pants on. True. That's this one. Uh, reverse that. Um, I have a hat on and a watch on. False. Uh, or, or a watch on. I have either pants. I'm sorry, I have either a hat or a watch on. False, right? Make sense? Okay, so that's, or is also, and we say this, um, ampersand, ampersand, um, is also short-circuited. If the first item is true, it knows that, it knows the answer is true, so it just skips. If the first answer is false, it checks the second answer for true. Okay. In the case of the shell, it executes it. All right. Everybody cool? Didn't know you were going to be learning about Boolean logic, did you? Okay. So, ba -ba -ba -da -ba -ba -ba. debug and echo creating file temps. This is just debug information. How are we looking on time? Oh, okay. Time to stop. But I'll just show you the format with, with file to file.temp, right? So you saw me use format earlier. I set it to the width that I say that I say here, but it prompts me to put in. And then I take my Hamlet file, and then I put that to an output file of Hamlet.temp. Right? Does that make sense? All right, we'll pick up here next month. Any questions with what we've done through so far? Am I boring everyone to tears? Send an email to the list explaining how to fix the cascading EOS of my incredibly filthy script into just one reference. Well, we can do that at the end if you like, because I I'll probably put you. Hey, real quick, what about when buy type format so it brings something back in real quick? Show us that trick. Oh, okay. Thank you. 
10 with 10, whatever. Okay, colon um, 10 to 20, type it to format width of 10. just one line and do a bang bang and does dot bang on that. That's vim format width of 20 and then you say you go down here oh I want this up here so you join it and then you do a last and there that's it. That's what so you just do the bang bang and put the dot bang Bang bang. Bang bang is quicker than colon dot bang for within golf. <laughs> While we're on the topic. Of golf? Oh, yes. The other day, um, to the right I was on a system that didn't have nano and I felt like I was going to die. Wrong. And, um, and so I opened up on them and I hadn't used it in a while. But I went into insert mode and as soon as I hit any of the arrow keys to move around, it took me out of insert mode. Yeah. I mean, I, that hasn't happened previously, right? Is it Vim or is it VI? Oh, it could have been VI. Okay. Um, VI did not understand uh, error keys. Really? And if Vim is in the VI mode, uh -huh. it, I don't believe it understands error keys either. Okay. So if it's strictly VI mode, uh, you know how to move around elsewise? If you put your right hand on the home road, J and K is down and up. Uh, left is H. Right is L. Okay. So down, 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 up, 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 left, right, left, right, left. Well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been that big a deal. It's on a Debian system. I could have had to get on I was actually configuring the network, so I couldn't have to. Learn the eye. All right, thank you for your time. And uh, we are going to go to our. Does anyone have any announcements that they'd like to make while we're. Yes. Yes, go ahead. A couple of things. Um, I have a collection of 20, and 30, 20 to 30 videos out of my cart. And right now, Jeremy's. The only person who's volunteering to convert them from VHS to Hog Theora or something else. Um, if anyone wants to do that, this is for um, prevent child abuse pickets counting. Uh, they're laying around the TV and the VCR to their meetings right now when they should be. And then they're already carrying a laptop, so um, there's no need to, to do that. Um, Freelance PC project has a ticket tracking system now, and a couple of things that we're doing with it. One is we're tracking internal things that need to be done. The second is because we interface with so many uh, nonprofits, they are asking us for help with various things. For instance, we've got one group who wants a lab set up. We've got another group who wants uh, essentially some CRM stuff. So if you're interested in that and want to take a look at the, uh, the stuff that's available out there, there's not much right now, but it's going to start populating over this week. And so if you want to get involved with something really short and sweet, um, 
we can get your access to that. And if you'll just send a message to the list, I'll get you. Uh, I'll, I'll probably send a uh, link to uh, to the ticket tracking system uh, tonight or tomorrow. I have no more. Great. Anyone else have any announcements? Okay. Well, according to my little email that I sent a while back, it looks like tonight our lightning hotness, our hotness lightning talks. Um, <laughs> hotness, lightning sessions. Paris Hilton over here. that's hot. <laughs> um, so I, I had this idea. Someone said, oh, "I'd like to see this and that." And the other. Oh, I'd like to see that. And I said, "Well, hey, let's just have a, a lightning round. Uh, show a ten-minute something that, that you like. That's your hotness on your machine right now." And so, some a couple people said, "All right, I'll bring my thing and I'll show my thing off." Um, that didn't sound right, but um, <laughs> so here we go. <laughs> uh, looks like Vaughn. You want either you set up? I'll go last. Hopefully, it'll get a little darker. Let me see if. If you want to move. Or whenever it is, I'm in order in the email. Oh, right there. Yeah. your power. You gave up the um, OLPC. Uh, no, it's just. Oh. I, I've, no, I've never been able to display it. You know, I don't have. There's no VGA out on it. But I thought you were doing eggs over secure shell. Yes, but the resolution on that is much more. I'm, I'm sorry. The resolution on my OPC is much more than that one is. So whereas that's only 800 to 600, the OPC is some ungodly 12 to 85. Something I don't know. You know, it's a. Yeah. For the um, but you know it's weird because it's a small, such a small screen. You know, but the thing is, it's so compact. You set up you you put out a three X to retarget the plug down. Okay, but yeah, it's so small that I mean it's. And I don't know why it is. If they unplug something accidentally. <laughs> Projector only does 800 by 600. So if I were to do that, lame, I would have to scroll <laughs> to look at the bottom and the top. And you guys need a different projector. Big pardon? Do you need one? Nothing for it. Nobody's suitable. I got I got a video control panel up, so I can just. That'd be great. I mean, this is a Medion's, and we appreciate them letting us borrow it. So, uh, but they had to use it today on a session and uh, or their sales, right? So uh, yeah, if you want to bring it from now on. Fantastic. So what you showing us, Vaughn? Yeah, I've got a half my little light up here. Kill light. I'm sorry, what'd you say? I had a nice little graphic, I think you're Yeah. Yeah. Bizarre. Yeah, that's fine. If you can see, real small. 
may not, I think they wrap it maybe larger than the screen so it's not open.
programming is all free, open source. You said 15,000. No, we've got about 15,000. and are you getting so many folks you We're talking about, uh, I'm sorry, 1,500, you're right. 1,500. We've got uh, a few. <laughs> we have, total, we have about 60 handsets, and they were about $100 a piece on eBay. So that's 6,000 right there. We have three servers that were about $1,500. So that's another, or, yeah. So we're we're about in at about sixteen thousand. I think that that is a good number. What kind of engines are you using? Polycom sixteen thousand. Because he doesn't use string of cans. That's just fun. We've got the Polycom five hundred one is our bread and butter phone, but. You know, all, all total, you know, I figure it costs a quarter of what we could, what bought on the, just hiring it, hiring it out. Did but, you need any special interface cards to interface with your motor? I just uh, uh, got a, uh, we went Digium first and didn't like it so much. And I got it up. <laughs> David, who's the other? Sangoma. Sangoma. The A1, just a plain T1 card. In the both locations, and it comes straight. Straight AT and T comes out, and you plug it in, and uh, you know the way it runs. But uh, now, is that a point to point, or is that through the internet? It, it's uh, just internet on, uh, and it's not even the. Uh, and I, I apologize, I've had a long day. But MPLS, we don't even have MPLS circuit. Um, but we are both on Deltacom and Greenville and Raleigh, so the latency and the jitter and all that is, is it's no worse than the next telephones uh, they were using before this came up. Most of the time it's way better. Uh, so it, it is a pretty nice thing. This, this is a tricks box. Uh, I've VP'd in into our office and this is uh, the, the tricks box thing. It's a like I say, it's just a wrapper for Asterix and some of the other other stuff that's out there. Uh, flash op, flash operator panel, all sorts of other open source programs are just wrapped conveniently in this. Go into the the, the main engine. Or the useful thing that I use most of the time is just the uh, free PBX portion of it. Does it say Sugar CRM? Yeah, it's got Sugar packaged in with it. Oh, wow. Uh, One of the interesting things is from Sugar, you can have it set up so that you can dial a number and it will connect that number to your investment. We don't so use fully integrated. Yes, it is the asterisk. Yes, wait a minute. So you pick up your phone and you dial and it goes to your phone? No, no, no. You, <laughs> you click on a phone icon. <laughs> oh, and then it's not over here. Okay. okay. And then your phone starts ringing. I was like, wow, that's awesome. I can pick up my phone and listen to it. <laughs> okay. But that was okay. So go to the web interface and click on the phone. And it'll dial you. It'll dial you and have that number. It's really that you will get up to. That's cool. Indeed. <laughs> 
That's hot. We don't use them, but <laughs> we, we don't use sugar, but there's also the way the inbound calls can pop up contact information. Oh, nice. You know, and, and automatically recorded in CRM that, hey, this person called at this time. So your CRM records are more likely to be complete. I went with TrickBox because I'm the only technical person in the building. <laughs> and having a, a web-based thing that somebody else would have a password to, and most of us just check box and, and you know, see what's happening. And So when you go on vacation, they don't bother you? Well, the, yeah, well, <laughs> in theory, but, uh, you know, that, that was that was my big reason is, is if I go anywhere, uh, hopefully somebody can follow some instructions, even if I talk them through it over the phone. Uh, but the free PPX is the main configuration portion of it. Um, That's hot. But it's <laughs> did you guys just do a straight cut over, or did you demo it for a while? Uh, put up one phone or two two handsets and uh, put one in one corner of the building, one in the other. <laughs> So you guys can talk to each other, yeah. <laughs> right. And then uh, you know, we, uh, and then it happened real quick after that. But uh, we were we had a Merlin legend that was dying, and we we got to where uh, just finding used boards and different things was becoming a, a, a heartbreak just to keep us up and running. Uh, so we we were pushed into it. You mentioned you have three servers. Are they set up in a redundant cluster like you have servers? No, one, one in Raleigh, one in Greenville. And you can, we can't have failover in multiple registrations, but I haven't, I really haven't had a need. Um, that's, I probably ought to, but they're just. When one dies. When you have a power failure or something. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's a, I mean, we use call manager. Um, yeah. If we didn't have clusters, so. Now we uh, if you lose power and all of his clients are in a single building, how are they going to register? Well, because presumably if it's not you can lose power to a server without using losing power to a building. You can lose a power supply in a unit. You can lose hard drives in a unit. You can lose all kind of things. Yeah, well, what, what, what we got <laughs> so, is uh, not that it's old fashioned. We've got a spare box hmm. sitting there ready to be turned on. Okay, and I. Uh, it was more of a question of how you handle it. Yeah, I just got to go. I mean, our environment's much larger. Yeah, it doesn't really apply. But it's more like doesn't support redundancy. Yeah, it, yeah. Asterix and Trixbox are can, can be clustered real heavily. The biggest thing I'm seeing somebody supporting fifty thousand is that there are um, there are clusters that'll support that. They'll support any of the fifty thousand. Um, they're doing an entire uh, government department, multiple sites. Uh, all across the country, and so it will find a uh, it'll find a PDX app for the thing at some point. Um, and, and like our phones can, if if one goes down, we can very quickly on phone change the registration to the other office. Right. Because uh, I only got thirty phones in the building. Of those, only five are really important to me. <laughs> Times so I, I scramble when I have to, but I had I had a much more impressive uptime until, <laughs> until it came up. Uh, AT and T has been digging holes in front of our 
building. And I didn't realize, when I got back from vacation, I said, the phones are down. So the first thing I did was reboot, but then I, find, I actually look out the window and there's AT&T, uh, and they just cut the line. But um, So I, I was up time like 58 days before this, and that, that was just for a, a upgrade. But it, it's been up since we put it up. Um, I don't know what all y'all want to see on it. Uh, but the, from, from our perspective, the stuff and work that's been good is the ability to transfer calls outside the building and find me, follow me for the salesman. They got one number now. They can go out and ring their home, their mobile phone, everywhere they may be all at once. Uh, so we're catching a lot more calls on the first try. Can it, does it pull their call back to go to Wisconsin? Yeah, and, yeah, you can, and, and you can uh, voice attend the and you know, if you want to go to voicemail, or if you'd like to try another number, go to a secretary, you, you can do all that. Uh, Had you used any of this before you did this? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I mean, that's for testament, but if I can do it, it's, it's really easy. And our, our asterisk at, at where I work, um, if, if there's voicemail left for you, it gets... Put it to a wave file email to you. So you can listen to your voicemail from your computer. <clears throat> if your handset's not glowing, you know, you don't want to tell it. Yeah. There's um there's supposedly a uh, package that's come out in the past six to nine months that uh, attempts to decode the voice recording to text. And it'll send the text along with the wave file and an email. So you don't necessarily have to listen to Read it. I've heard mixed reviews. Some people say it, it's about 90% accuracy. Some people say it's supposed to be 70 or But does it understand Southern accent? Does it understand Southern accent? That's the 70 That may be the 70 <laughs> Without getting into a lot more technical. Uh, there's various, various voice protocols or data, data protocols to get a voice or IP call to you uh, in, inside the office that sit from the server to the handset uh, office to office it's IAX between the servers but one of the neat things that we did uh, Digium makes a little uh, IAX adapter a little blue IAXI they call it and you just plug an analog phone into it plug the other end into an internet cable and uh You've got a phone wherever you are in the world. It comes back, it comes back to our server. Uh, and we had some guys go to a conference in Mexico, and we just gave them a ten-dollar analog phone and, and that in their hotel room. They just plugged it right in. It negotiates past, or it's invisible really to the the hotel authentication routines and all that. And they just plugged it in. They had an extension for a week and a half, and then right there, called called their wife back in Greenville, just picked it up. All of a sudden, the number they're they're in. So that was you know, that that was something made me look good. So how much is that? How much is it? Ninety dollars. You can get them much cheaper. That's uh, that's the cheapest price that did you allow people to tell you. Table charge. 
um, they have pretty severe. Uh, if you put something up on eBay, try to put PC up on eBay for less than, I forget if it's 90 or 99, you'll get uh, nasty grams from uh, a number of resellers and from Digium uh, telling you they don't know where you bought it, they'll find out and they will cut you off. But you can't get it much cheaper as long as you're not trying to buy it over the internet. You can, you can try opening that uh, grab off the firebox directly and it'll auto size it down. Oh, there you go. You have sense? Yeah. Because I'm, I'm really interested to see that. Do you know if there's a soft phone for hashers? Yeah, there are many. They're lying. So we're looking at getting just a, an IP phone. Go you know, with the Wi-Fi for the guys in the warehouse, but uh, um, but we can't get them to answer the phone even when they're sitting there. So, <laughs> it's, uh, but virtually any soft phone out there, you can you can add eleven and make full screen. Um, anything that does skimming. There we go. Oh, yeah, sure so does. <laughs> uh, <laughs> gateway control protocol, like drop twenty three. Any soft phone is that? <laughs> this is sort of what, in, in the past year, what we've uh, thrown together, cooked together. Uh, the, the Greenville land up there at the top, you got the asterisk server just hanging off the land. Uh, the big TF Sense box, that's our Greenville one. Just, well, sorry, I don't know why it's bigger, but uh, we've got four NICs in it. Emphasis. Uh, Nick two goes to a DMZ. Uh, Nick three, uh, like I said, we have actually have two circuits coming in. This is something we couldn't do with the pigs. Uh, is depending on where we want our traffic to go, we we route it on one one T one or the other. So uh, I've got one T one that is only for a VPN between locations. Uh, so with any VoIP traffic or uh, our AS400 traffic between the two locations, if PFSense sends it on, on its own little pipe and uh, it, that's all it's on it. When we didn't do that, we did have call quality problems. Somebody goes to sportsillustrated.com or something and uh, the calls would drop or crackle. But once we put it on its own circuit, we wanted to bundle circuits and have three, but it works better just to split them. Can you use QoS to help take care of some of those problems and not have to have not, not without going to the MPLS with our carrier. We can do the QoS all, all day long in the building, but as soon as it hits the, the T1, the, the Deltacom, they strip, so it doesn't have MPLS. What? They have it. Uh, yeah, they, they got it about the time we came up, but we really haven't had to, had a reason to go to it. Uh, the call quality is really pretty good. Uh, so the damage there. And what does MPLS stand for? Multiple protocol labor That's sort of the summary I have. Anybody got any questions? Describe your server hardware. Run PFSense and run your on. PFSense is running on $60 IBM NetBands, uh, NetVistas that we 
cloth from the FLPC program. Uh, they had a bunch donated from Alcoa, and well, those were two gigahertz. Two, two gigahertz. <laughs> two gigahertz. One yeah. gig of memory. Uh, we upped up the memory in them. Do you feel bad for taking those machines? No, we bought them. Oh, I know you bought them. They stole them. I don't know if you feel bad for it. I go home and worry. Two gigahertz. Four or three even. And we don't ever max them out. I mean, they, we don't, maybe 30% processor is the highest I've ever seen the uh, Aster trick box in Greenville. I started with the Dell 2650, which ended up being a real bad, bad, bad choice. Uh, the, the interrupts in the Dell BIOS are pre-configured in just certain, you only have certain choices for the interrupts and you don't have a lot of flexibility uh, in reassigning them. Uh, and they just give you little patterns. You know, seven, five, nine, 12 for your, your four devices or you, you toggle it and flips them around a little bit. But there's, uh, I believe that has been the problem. We've had the faxes. Tricks, uh, Tricksbox can receive a fax and email it to you. Uh, and we were, hitting probably about 95% success with that. But every 5% would, would just be half the facts or the top or the bottom lines cut off and then just drop. And uh, it only takes one order to be lost uh, for that not to work. So Can you go to an analog line and just... Uh, yeah, they, they've got analog cards. Right. And uh, what we did is we just put our packs back on analog and, and, and just stay that way because we can't, the business is too competitive, we can't lose an order, you know. You, you always got the Cancun trip advertisements, but you never, they would always fail on an order or something important. <laughs> but uh, in Raleigh for the uh, trick box, I bought the green, box from uh, Phonality. They're pre-loaded, pre-configured. And uh, I noticed in setting it up that it is a lot of the bios interrupts are you've got every choice in the world you can reassign. And, you know, if you need this slot to have one interrupt all by itself, you can do that. No problem. It's, uh, it was about $500 cheaper than that Dell and it's done as good or better. And it's just a little dinky little board, a high cooling case, and a little SATA drive. Those are actually made by Rhino. Uh, they make all their equipment like for uh, That's more or less a nutshell. Great, thank you. Thank you. Longer than I'd like. <laughs> <laughs> There's two of them. Uh, uh, <laughs> Next, we got David. Which David? Which one signed up? Uh oh. I've got. Uh, That's you. Huh? That's you. Pump is. 
No, I'm not going to put me, but you're just going to get Myth DV because they. Well, no, wait, no, no, no. David yeah. Funk, Cobbler, and or back up PC. Yeah, okay. okay, I'll get out of here. Is that you? That's me. Okay. All right, I'll show you something really cool that my brother neglected to bring a computer. He was going to have Fedora installed. If it's someone had brought a computer and wants Fedora not installed, I'll show up Cobbler real quick, but I'm going to talk through it. Maybe not get blinded. Cobbler is a framework that essentially sets up um, pretty quickly a PXE boot server and installs over PXE. Uh, you boot over PXE and it starts to install over uh, the network. And uh, you can do a um, you can do a base install in under two minutes on decent hardware. So you know by the time you got your multiple CDs out, or you got a DVD and read from the DVD and selected your packages, you'd already have it done. On top of that, it handles all the updates. So right now, if you go and say you want to install CentOS or RHEL, you grab the disks, and so you grab, let's say, CentOS 5.0, because you've already downloaded it, you stick it in, and it starts loading. You get it all loaded and installed. The first thing you do is down-y update and have it update the entire machine. Um, with, uh, with using Cobbler, it automatically is installing the updated packages rather than installing the base packages. So when you roll a machine off, it's, it's already keeping your repositories in sync. Uh, you run a cron job to have it sync the repositories to keep the packages updated, and then uh, is installing the updated stuff. So when you install a machine, it's updated, ready to go out of the box. And you can use Kickstart to do this, and Rumor has it. You can do it with um, uh, SUSE, Debian, Ubuntu, and a few other distributions that aren't uh, Red Hat-centric. We're using it, I'm using it at work. Uh, we're using it at FLPC, and we're installing about six gig worth of data, and it takes about 30 minutes on some really, really old hardware to install a machine from nothing to everything. And it's repeatable. You're setting, you can create users in your Kickstart file. You can go ahead and set root passwords. You don't have to answer any questions. It's going to install it. It's going to be repeatable. It's going to be the same every time, and uh, you'll know that the machine's set up the same way every time, so you can hand off the pass to someone else. And that's Cobbler. Any questions? Awesome. So you didn't say it's hot. When the Cobbler, can you set it to where Cobbler is hot? The Mac is Is it Peach Cobbler? It'll push down a different image based on Mac. Yes, you can have it. It'll push down different image based on Mac address, based on IP address based upon the class of machine that's connected to it. Um, you can do interesting snippets like, for instance, uh, one of the ones I have detects if it's a VMware image. Because there are some things that you want with VMware, like you want certain kernel options to make sure your scheduling doesn't get, uh, or your timing doesn't get screwed up. Because uh, when VMware is presenting that virtual CPU, you're not getting each of the CPU ticks. So your timing goes off pretty quickly. Um, and one of the ways you can compensate for that is to put a kernel option in. So one of my um, one of my cobbler profiles checks 
to see if it's a VMware machine that it's loading onto. It's a VMware machine. It gets that kernel option automatically put in. I think it's actually 100, 100 hertz or 1,000 hertz, one of the two. Um, and so you can you can uh, toss in a lot of, yes? How does Common know that the remote machine is a VMware? It's looking at, it's looking at the hardware. Because essentially, it's booting up and it's sending data back to Cobbler saying uh, you're getting all of the syslog data that's coming across and you're getting the message that's coming across and it's sending that back to Cobbler. So Cobbler's looking at that and it's saying, oh, there are X number of drives. I need to handle, when it has three drives, I handle it this way and partition it this way. Or it's on VMware, it has that VMware generic hardware I know that I have to do X, Y, and Z because it's seeing all of that come across back to it. Now, did you say the package updates get redistributed to everybody in sort of a BitTorrent sort of way? I did say that, but I don't know that I understand your question. <laughs> so, in, 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 the, in the same way that BitTorrent shares the file, a file among different people, it can look look at all these other people's repositories uh, yes. that they've downloaded and, and say, "Yeah, oh, what." Gems is newer than Fred's is, so we get gems. It will check. You can tell it what report. You can tell it what repositories to look at, and it will go out and check for updates constantly, and it will grab those updates so that you have a local repository for it. And then you can tell the machine to point to that repository in addition to the distributions repositories, or you can have it just point to these. <laughs> You can have it just point to the distros repositories. But it, what he's asking, though, is can you update existing machines on the network? They might have a local, is that what you're saying? I am. Well, yes and no. There is a component called Cone. Cone? Cone. K O A M. Cone. Okay. No, it's Cone. <laughs> <laughs> and. <laughs> And it will allow you to reinstall a machine. So if you have a machine up and you want to repurpose it, it will handle reinstall from the command line. You do cone, tell it what profile you want to hit, and it will automatically launch a reinstall. Does code drop the user's data? May. Depends upon how it's set up. Um, and that can be a bad thing. but. At the same time, if you're if you're converting a a file server with SAN attached storage to say a DNS server, you know the SAN would preserve the data and you wouldn't have access to that anymore. But uh, unless you had another machine mount it, but the machine itself could easily take over the DNS responsibilities. But to do what you're talking about, um, there's a tool out called Funk. That uh, a bunch of guys. I'm sorry, it's called what? Funk. F U N C. F U N C. Funk. Yeah, but it has all the disco esque um, uh, meaning to it. As a matter of fact, if you look at their label, it looks like it was designed in the 70s. We got to Funk. Um, and Funk is a uh, is a distributed command system. Essentially, there is. Uh, certificate authority that exists and it issues each machine a certificate and it issues operators 
certificates, and it keeps track of, uh, it acts as a centralized authority um, figure, so you can say, Eric has permission to deal with all the machines in Greenville, but we're only gonna let Kevin deal with the machines in Spartanburg, and we'll let Jay deal with machines in both places. <laughs> and it's bi-directional, so, for instance, if you wanted to run Yum Update on 30 machines, Eric could say Yum Update Greenville.servers.interplies.com, and it would update everything in that DNS hierarchy. All the all the machines in Star Greenville, so file server, DNS server, um, web server. Greenville.servers.com would automatically get updated um, because you can essentially use globs instead of shelling into a machine, running Elm update on the machine. You can do it uh, across probably uh, right now the largest implementation I've seen is about 500 machines. So you can say all the DNS machines we want to change some configuration pattern. And you can change a file in single uh, in all the DNS machines, just as if you were doing it in one. And uh, because it doesn't, because it allows that bi-directional capability, um, and instead of authenticating to a single machine, you're saying I'm sending this command, and here are my credentials, and that all those machines are saying, yeah, you have those credentials, we'll let you run that command, and you can go all you can go all a ton of machines. Any questions about Funk? It's a cool tool if you have more than about 10 machines and need to manage more than 10 or so machines. Nothing. Backup PC. Shameless plug, the, uh, the August edition of Linux Pro Magazine has an article on backup PC that was written by me. So I urge you to all buy it and then write in and say that you love that particular article. Um, he cracked my system. <laughs> 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 what, the guy's an idiot. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> I'm going to warn them ahead of time about you. Um, I'm sorry, what's the magazine again? Linux Pro Magazine. It's the expensive one. Yeah, that right. Yeah. They want 13 bucks for. Yeah. But, uh, Which, August, you said? August. It is coming out in July 15th. Barnes & Noble has it. Uh, Books A Million has it. Um, those are the two I know about. Uh, Backup PC is a multi-platform, multi-transport, deduplicating, intelligently scheduled backup platform. Uh, it does not have features like backing up Exchange, backing up uh, databases live, things of that nature. Uh, it's assuming that you're going to use native tools to do those backups, and then it's going to grab it. It's primarily designed to do disk-based backups. And so looking at it, it's multi-transport. It'll do backups over uh, SMB or CIFS. So you can, without having to throw a client on, you can back up your Windows machines. It'll do rsync. It'll do rsync daemon. It'll do tar. It'll do any of those over secure shell. Um, and so virtually any type of machine out there, you can back up one way or another. Uh, 
some of the interesting things that it allows you to do is um, it deduplicates your data. So I back up, for instance, 30 Windows machines. Those 30 Windows machines, by and large, have the same data on them. Uh, even when you're getting down to documents, I've got three users who are doing the same job, and they happen to have the same reference manuals as PDFs on their machine. So rather than backing that up three times, it says, you know what, the file name for these files is the same. I'm going to hash that file and uh, see if it is the same. So the file name is the first test, if file name is the same, then it hashes. If the hash is the same, then it keeps just one copy and places hard links in both of the backup directories. And let's see, what else did I say it was? Um, intelligently scheduling. Um, most backup programs that you set, you set specific times for them to run. Um, you say backup server XYZ at 10 p.m. at night. Well, that doesn't work so great, uh, especially when you're talking about laptops. There needs to be prioritization. You don't know when people are going to be in. They may be on the road for two weeks at a time and then come in and only be here for three days. So the way that um, the way the backup PC does it is it looks on the network every, by default it's every hour. Uh, I have it set every 30 minutes. And it says, show me all the machines that I'm responsible to back up and let's see if they're there. So it runs, trying to see if those machines are there. By the way, tell me if I'm running out of time. Um, it checks to see if those machines are there. If those machines are there, it then says, all right, who are the machines that are here that I need to back up? And you know, if, if you back one up an hour ago, you're not gonna start another backup. So it sits there and it creates a list of machines that are here that backups are due for. Then it's going to uh, prioritize those. And it's prioritizing based upon a couple things. First is the last time that it saw the machine. So if you've got a machine that hasn't been seen in 50 days, and you've got a machine that's been seen 10 days ago, the 50-day-ago machine is going to get backed up first, although it'll, it does multiple backups at a time. Uh, the default limit is four, so if you've got you know, four machines or more, you're going to start running into where it's going to try and schedule intelligently based upon how long ago it's seen. It'll also say, you know what, I've seen uh, every time that we see this machine, it's on 24 hours a day. It learns that, and it will... Um, it'll say, you know what, I can put off backing this machine up because I know it's going to be on at midnight. And so if there's another machine that, even though I haven't done a backup recently uh, of that machine, uh, the backup is older of the other machine, I know it's going to be on, I'm going to push that off. And so it's intelligently scheduling, uh, and that's a, uh, that's a pretty cool feature when you're dealing with end users as opposed to uh, servers that are on all the time. Uh, let's see. Talked about deduplicating. I talked about multi-transport. Um, it's cross-platform, so it runs on Windows, Linux, Unix, Mac OS X. Um, the final thing that I like is that it's end-user accessible. In other words, your end-users can do their own restores. Uh, there's a web interface that allows them to go and look at the file system, look at the last time they were backed up, start backups. Uh, you can let them stop or DQ backups as well. And uh, having that ability, if you've ever had to deal with end users who mangle a file, lose a file, 
uh, and they want your help getting it back, pointing them to a web interface where they go and get it themselves rather than bothering you, you having to dig out tapes, find the tape that it's on, find a non-mangled version on a tape. You know, that's a, that's a lot so of this work. this does full version? Yes, it does full versioning. And as a matter of fact, uh, if you use rsync as a protocol or rsync data, it will um, it essentially does incremental spread. But you can you can have I, for instance, I keep two two folds, which is a really a falsehood. I I check I keep folds forever, really, and I check um, checksums on the files as they move forward, so that I only am transferring files that have changed. Uh, that and that is a new fold when I'm checking the checksums. Um, and I will check, um, I just check end time on files during incrementals. So it's really incremental forever. It's got that one base once the first two run. So I'm backing up machines with 15, 20 gigs of data and they back up in 30 minutes. Are you backing up the whole machine or just uh, the data on the machine? I back up the entire machine. So, you, and, and this uh, duplication of files, that, that works over uh, the system files? And yes. All of that? Yes. Wow, that, that should give you a significant savings. In um, we initially projected that I would need seven and a half gig backup of around 40 machines. I have not yet hit one gig. That's awesome. Well, for instance, you have an ISO sitting on your drive. You're backing up 600 meg of, uh, of that ISO. If I've got five other people that have that, and I'm only backing it up once, I've saved almost two and a half terabytes worth of data. But it doesn't two and a half gigabytes. But that file doesn't have to exist in the same directory. Not in the same directory. It has to have the same name. That's cost it's program. It's free. It's open source. It's back at PC. It's been around for about eight years now. Um, it doesn't. It, it really has not gotten a lot of press because it's been disk-based, and really disk-based backups have been very expensive because disk has historically been expensive. But that's changing. If you run in a small company, though, that's the only way to go. I mean, it is. It has been for years now. I mean, yes. Yeah. And quite honestly, if you're backing up the kind of stuff, uh, you know, until you can start justifying a huge tape library that's going to sit there and change it. You know, how do you back up five or ten terabytes worth of data? And uh, so we uh, we've been using this for about six months where I work. Um, it's uh, we I take it back. We've been using it a little longer than that, but it's actually been in production probably about three months now. Uh, for everyone, we have progressively larger beta users and. Um, we're extremely pleased. A little while ago, I thought you said that you thought it was going to take seven gigs? Seven terabytes. Okay. That, that Sorry. Seven uh, terabytes. And I have not yet hit one terabyte. Okay. Sorry. I kind of made that interpretation, but I wasn't sure I did it. Yes. But you said three flops. I do that all the time. We we are keeping everything on disk. Um, we are talking about replicating it here at a Medion for you know, in case the end of the world as we know it happens in Liberty. And um, 
Yeah, yeah. At that point, I probably don't care, but someone may. Um, when you come back here by less than two hundred dollars, why would you do it again? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I, I can understand from an archiving standpoint, and backup PC does have an archiving standpoint. If you've got to keep something for seven years, that may make some sense for long-term tape storage. But I, I don't trust tape storage. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're we're really uh, we're really trying to shy away from that. We'll do the tapes probably because lawyers demand it. We won't trust that for backups. That's the right. archival type. Okay, well, that's The nice thing that Backup PC does is it's checking checksums as well. So even if this starts getting corrupt and it's checking the the um, the source checksum, it's going to find out, hey, there's something different here and make another copy. So you kind of have a little bit of error detection that keeps up with things. Any other questions? Yeah, oh. easy just to back up the backup too. And, you know. Yeah, uh, let me show you. I'm going to steal. Have already locked up I've got the, uh, he's got the web interface. This is my boss, by the way. Tell him Chloe wonderful things about me. I don't believe it. The, uh, I was really trying to withhold visual display to uh, entice you by the magazine, which I've lost in. Ironically, though, they've already paid me for the magazine, so I don't get anything if you buy it, other than you know, unless you go and tell them. One question about the uh, hashing and the hard looking. Sure. Uh, why would the file name be the same? Because the content of the file would be like it needs to be hashed, right? Well, theoretically, if you were going to do, if you have unlimited amount of time, you could hash every single file. Right. But it's time and longer intensive. I mean, I've got, um, hang on, I'll tell you how many files. So you're just saying that it's, it's a trade-off? It's a trade-off. Okay. This will also do uh, compression uh, on the fly, and I don't do that. I have... Um, how about the overhead? You're, you're running this all day long, and uh, the, the, you know, you, somebody brings their laptop in and says, Daddy, you haven't seen it in a couple of months. Is this going to, are they going to complain about your network being slow? What's... They don't complain about the network being slow. And can you throttle planes? <laughs> yes and no. Um, Wouldn't matter anyway, unless well, it does because the client feels it. Um, Especially if it's a VM, that's our situation right now. Or a wireless client. Well, uh, the the client feels it more because they're getting all of this disk access. But slowing down their system is what yeah. I'm saying. Is, is that a problem? It is initially. And what we have typically done is all the new clients that we're pushing out, we do the backups first. And we get two full backups. And after the two, first two full backups, it's no big deal. You can let me uh, let me jump into a client here. I'll see if I can find mine. Actually, mine's a poor example. But how often are you actually doing these backups? You, you I do checking it. every half hour. Or I, I have it on a currently the schedule is backup every two days, uh -huh. and uh, and then check the checksums every fourteen days. Uh -huh. Wow, um, two full. I'm sorry? Why do two full with the Getting the two full will register a checksum of the uh, head end and tail end of the file. 
And so uh, when you're going back through the file list, it's looking at two things. It's looking at end time, and if end time hasn't changed, it also checks the head and tail end of the uh, file checksum to see if it really has changed, regardless of what end time says. Modified time. There's end time, A time, and C time, modified time, access time, and create, create time. But you can see here, this is a this is a pretty large um, client, and his last backup, which was an incremental, was 48. Checking all the checksums, bumped it up to 71 minutes. And that's um, once once you get past the first two poles, that most people aren't seeing. I don't know. I don't see it. Do you see? We have some complaints from the really heavy users um, that are doing a lot of disk-based activity as well. But when you're talking about uh, you know, 20 to 50 minutes. But if you're only doing it every two days, I assume you're, you're scheduling it off hours anyway, right? Well, not all these machines are here. I let back a PC right. schedule it. When it sees the machine and, hey, I haven't seen this machine, it's time for a backup of this machine, I'm going to kick one off, and it starts it. So, is it smart enough to prioritize the off hours? Yes. If it knows the machine's going to be there in the off hours, because it's learned that through history, it will not back it up during the day. The, the issues don't seem to be the backup itself, but the comparisons that go on for the checksums. Yes. And that can be, we get a lot of feedback from our users, not a lot, but some, that... Uh, that's probably especially people that have tons and tons of small files. Or badly defragmented disks. Yeah. Or badly fragmented disks, I should say. So, um, but I understand there's... When it's badly defragmented. I believe there's supposed to be a new version of R-Sync out that's going to cut that significantly. Yes, there, there is supposed to be the latest version of R-Sync that uh, has been released. Uh, it's in alpha right now, I think. I think it's still alpha, maybe beta. Um, cuts the checksum checking by uh, is one-eighth of what it was the version prior. Processor utilization. Which should solve any of the risks. Which should drop that. And by the way, we've done, we've opted to go our sync simply because it simply because of the incremental forever. Um, it's not passing all the network traffic for all these files that that we already have a copy of. Explain that. I'm not, I'm not familiar with that term. Um, the concept is that you do a full, and then you're constantly checking against that full to see if something's changed. And so even though you're running a full backup, which in, in this case is only checking checksums, you're not really dumping all of that data back across the network. It is, uh, it's really an incremental. It's only passing what's changed, even though it's verifying that everything's the same on both sides, instead of just comparing uh, a date, a modification time our new create time. And um, that saves you on network traffic, saves you on disk access to a degree. Um, you still have a disk. So what you have is, what you wind up with is a synchronized uh, uh, file, you know, file system. Yes. With versioning. That's, yes. Okay. Well, there's a change to the file that grabs the whole file, grabs the it, Right now it grabs the whole file. Um, the newest version of R-Sync, which is an alpha, is supposed to start doing deltas. Uh, although, quite honestly, network traffic is not, if you look at, um, if you look at the network traffic that we're talking about, we're talking about 
at most four meg a second. That's what uh, 32 megabits a second, and that's on a uh, switch network. So that's not that's not uh, pushing things. Uh, that showed last night back up, right? Yeah, at 1.4 okay. megabits a second. That's my machine. I was working on it at 6:30. I had no idea that was going on. I didn't know it backed up tonight, really, so. so. The, the people who are complaining about this are, uh, are certainly our power users, and we have a pretty heavy technical crowd because most of our users are developers. Uh, and well, I got people who will complain if they just see their drive line running. I mean, that better than swimming. Unplug like that lead. <laughs> <laughs> But you can see. Uh, can, can you take it up to real time backup or, or redundancy? No. Well, I mean, it's not a DRBD type solution. Um, you can schedule it for, I guess, every few hours. But you can see, I've got uh, I've got all of these machines, and it's color coding them because we're doing incremental forever. We're backing up the actual size on disk. Uh, would be 1.6 terabytes. And if you come back and look at... Um, oh, wait, I apologize if this is a Windows machine. I haven't yet converted him to... Interface looks great, just needs some retouching on that bottom bar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I the uh, Linux box. Two boxes. <laughs> <laughs> My pool is 661 gig, so I'm I'm not even close to touching, um, not even close to touching. So that's how many machines? This is this is around 40. Um, and most of those being Windows or Linux or what? Virtually all of these are Windows. Um, there are a few Linux boxes out there, like my machine. What kind of data? about I'm surprised you don't have more of that data on the network instead of on the individual machines. One of the things, that was my argument when they told me they wanted to implement a laptop backup plan. I said, you have no purpose in having data on your laptop. And um, I was told that that was well and good in a textbook, but that users were going to put data on their laptop. And part of the reality is that our people are mobile in excess of 50% of the time. So, right now, over our WAM, there's just no no option to uh, to have them push big files back and forth. We've got people with terabytes of uh, data that they're pulling chunks off and putting you know, 50 gigabytes worth of images on their machine to work on uh, at a time, and there's just no hope of, of uh, them using a server because they're just on the office. So. Um, Reality sunk in that, that telling people that was essentially uh, a problem for the company because they weren't going to do it. It wasn't reasonable for them to do it. And so, you know, I guess I have to live with that. But um, if you take a look at, um, just to show you the. You can, and the user can do this as well. They can start incremental or full or stop a backup. But you can also uh, come in to a uh, 
come down here and it will show you when. Here are the backups, the last set of backups across here. And when something changes, you'll see a V0 for the first instance. And it'll come across and show you the versioning. So a user can say, ah, I don't remember when this file was last right. And I wish we had a, I don't want to go mucking around in your machine too much. Is there a safe place I can go where there are likely to be versions? Look for your check. I roll. No. Look under uh, data off the C drive. Okay. And if you want, you can go to um, WOTD. Um, look at uh, consulting WOTD. No, my videos. <laughs> Nothing in there. Not anymore. It's always on Tumblr. Yeah. No. Okay, you got a machine that uh, you got a machine that the hard drive totally crashes, and you got to restore the whole machine. How easy is that? Is that as easy as if you had had an image of that machine? You just no, never. And it's not designed as a. It is a data. Okay. Dump, not a. So I still got to do my my imaging. Yes. Okay. You can see. This particular VO version zero existed across uh, all of those backups and it maintained the same. On the 27th, it changed, so we have another version. On the 28th, it changed, so we have another version. What's the DR mean? Where do you see DR uh, above that? Directory? Directors. I'm sorry. Yes. Anything else? It's such a cool version of DI. Yes. Yeah, I, I like it. Um, I mean, it's not it's not a document management system by no, stretch of imagination, but like you know, if so, you've got a user who says, "I need this document," and I don't remember when I last mangled it, you can you can uh, have them just come up here and click, and for a single file, it'll pull it directly off the web server. What model is that tiny little thing? X sixty one. Very lucky it is not blue screen. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, he's not. It tends not to do that running Linux. His, he's not being facetious about that. But uh, it is a cool program. Um, it's definitely if you've got end user machines, it's definitely worth a look. Um, I don't use it for server backups. I know a lot of places who do. University of North Carolina does. Um, they, uh, but they're mainly a Unix shop. So they why, not? why would why would you? Um, mainly because some of the tools that I would want, um, such as being able to hit Exchange while it's live and backup. Um, same thing with SQL Server. Because I'm in a homogenous environment. I'm in a, the other thing is you'd want to schedule the server backups. Yeah, I wouldn't, want it, I wouldn't want it hitting. Uh, yep. Even though I can do blackout periods, I wouldn't want it hitting 10 a.m. You can't actually do hard scheduling with this? You can. Um, it's really not designed for you, but that ability exists. Uh, and, and the way that you would do it is you would tell it never to run to look for machines on its own, and you would tell it when to go look for machines. So you would say start only look for machines at six o'clock at night and eight o'clock at night, and don't look at any other times. 
Can you have more than one uh, backup profile? Sure. As a matter of fact, per machine, if you want. Okay. Okay. So that would that would it's, solve that, that. That would solve that problem. Um, and uh, I'm using Bacula right now for servers, and it gives me a little more um, a little more flexibility. It, uh, the default version of RSync doesn't support VSS out of the box, and although there is a version, and I do use the version that has VSS uh, enabled. So I can VSS use, is what? Um, virtual snapshot something. Thank you. It allows you to take a stable image of a file, even though the file's open, even though there's, there's a lock file. Shadow copy. Shadow copy, yes. yes. Um, but um, because of things like SQL Server and Exchange, I want something that that is uh, more widely supported on, so I use Bacula. Back to There's a client aspect of that, right? <laughs> there is a client. Okay. It's just set to. All right. Thank you. I'm sorry, I had to do that. <laughs> and now we've got Eric, who said he's got a two minute lightning talk. All right. So you better keep to it. Okay. You usually log into a lot of the servers. Oh. Um, um, I use by to mess with the programs all the time. I always log into Ruth. Uh, <laughs> I'm down like this. This is what not to do. Oh. And uh, this guy right here is uh, he's a pansy. Alright? I don't even mess with him. Pansy. <laughs> and, and, and like like uh, Dave said, that's good for textbook and that's good to say. You should you never do root. Because <laughs> I don't know, mama's boy, breastfed, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I, I'm a root guy. Anyway, um, go in, you buy a, a document, okay? And I'm on wirelessly, all right? And invariably, something happens to my wireless signal. My SSH dies, right? Everybody's had their SSH session close on you, and you're like, I wonder what kind of damage I did, right? You've kind of got that uneasy feeling, and you need to go call your mom. And uh, so what I do is uh, I always install Detach. Does anyone here ever use Detach? No, I use Screen. Screen. Y'all use Screen? Yes. Okay. I'm sorry that y'all use Screen. Uh, because Screen messes up emulation on half the machines I log into. All right? Detach does not. Sorry, you're doing it wrong. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry it's not completely right. Detach, detach is uh, ANSI codes go from A to B uncooked. Detach does not cook any screen codes. Okay. Wait, are you using Red Hat? I tell you, I, I get logged into a lot of machines. <laughs> All right, this is Red Hat. Example here. All right. So I log in. The first thing I do is I do a detach minus A, um, and then I do a temp, and I do some kind of, I do my name actually, but we'll say session one. And then, um, then bash. All right, so what that'll do is this will execute another, it'll fork another shell, and you'll get a pound sign again, or a dollar sign. And you'll be running bash, but the thing is, this is session one. The thing is, it creates a, uh, a pipe here. This is a, a pipe file, which basically holds this process ID running in memory, so that your parent process, if, if your shell dies or 
the wireless gets cut, your parent process ID, PPID, is killed, okay? But your child process ID is, is still running. So your shell is still running, it's still going through a command that's running and doing all kinds of nifty stuff. But when you log back in, you get to another shell, that previous process is still running, you can type in the same exact command, and what this does is say, hey, I'm going to attach back to my pipe, okay, called session one, and lo and behold, the screen refreshes, and then you're, you're, you're back to where you were. So you do not corrupt your client's files, um, you don't risk losing data, okay? So detach is very, screen lets you jump from, you can have about three or four screens at the same time, Detach, much more simple, it's just one, all right? So you can't, you can't adhere to multiple logins, except you just log in again with another shell process, and you just say two, session two. Now, our accounting system's character-based with all our users. When they log in in their uh, bash RC, this is the first thing that gets run in their login process is a detach with their name, they log in the county system. Well, their Windows boxes constantly crash. They get viruses. They plug up space heaters. It's the number one problem in the winter. Space heater. Fourteen people are down. Fourteen people. Allocate inventory gets unallocated. You know the thing. You know I don't know. I don't know what kind of database this is. You know it's just screwing up the accounting system. So I'm having to rebuild files. I haven't had to rebuild one file in the umpteen years I've been using Detach. So everybody detaches. And when they log back in, the batch process auto-reconnects to their screen. And they're like, oh, that's where I left my order. I was in that customer. Okay. Now, the other utility I like is uh, search and replace. I do a lot of web development. And I like I, I, I wanted to search and replace stuff in a lot of files. And uh, I learned this one on Google. It's called Perl. P-I-E. So I remember it's pi, easy as pi. Alright, so now I'm going to do a search global replace. Okay, now inside, inside it's delimited by forward slashes. Um, now I always remember this, this is how I start off on the command line. And what I need to do is I need to inject uh, the string here here uh, with my text I'm going from. So I can convert B to B. Is that not a, a string or a regular expression? This can be a regular expression. Okay, but I'm going to be easy example. I'm just going to convert the word B to B. And I'm going to do star .html. So I'm going to change all of my web files, HTML files in that directory. I'm going to change it from B to B. So every web file just got changed, okay? Or let's say I need to do it, uh, let's say I got an image source equals uh, quote forward slash blah, blah, blah to uh, image source equals forward slash another directory, okay? So what I need to do, and I need these quote signs, the reason is, the reason I write this out first, not not having real spaces visually, is because I need to get back in here and I need to escape out these forward slashes. All right. So 
So when I inject that regular expression into here, I better know that I'm, I'm escaping that uh, those four slashes out on my pad. And then Perl, nice search and replace. So when I'm changing about 3,000 files with the search and replace, I want it to complete. Why? So I'm gonna make sure I run detach first. <laughs> so I'm safe. And then I don't care how, by the way, this takes seconds. Perl is really awesome. Um, I will know that this will complete whether I drop the connection or not. Sometimes my commands run for half an hour, okay? The other utilities. So I will start my process at home. I will go ahead and just X out of the shell process. I will get back to work. I will log in, detach back in, and it's still running, okay? So, uh, so search and replace and detach, that's my lightning. Thank you, Eric. Well, I'm doing Myth TV and CompTIS Fusion, and you'll please to know that I won't be doing CompTIS Fusion because it doesn't behave very well with Myth TV. Like, it completely nukes the box. Right, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the problem is actually um, I use NVIDIA X. Well, I'll get to it in a minute. Uh, before you consider Myth TV, um, you have to consider hardware. You're going to have to have a tuner card. And almost nobody has a tuner stock in their PC unless you have an ATI all in wonder. You can get that to work uh, with Myth TV in the same sense that I can amputate one of my limbs, but that doesn't make it a good idea. <laughs> um, I would I would recommend um, look at the IVTV package. Um, I'm running a, a POG. I, nobody can, I don't know if, if, why they spelled their company name that way. Looks like it should be said Hopage. The Hopage River in New York. Named after the city. Can you spell it for me, please? <laughs> yes, because it's on the remote. H a u p p a u g e. Oh, is that how you said Hopage? Hopage. Oh. I'm running a Hopage PBR 250, and uh, works beautifully with the IVTV drivers. And um, in general, when you're looking at buying a tuner, um, if you're going to get an HD tuner, go to PCHDTV.com. They make a Linux HD tuner, and uh, one of the glorious things in their FAQ is, do you support Windows? And it just says no, and that's the end. They only have drivers for Linux. It's, uh, it's, uh, it, it's basically a small production card that they make once in every while, and they sell out pretty quick because they're only 100 bucks for an HD tuner card. Um, and you'll, you, you'll want to avoid a lot of the USB tuners like you'll see on Woot, Pinnacle, HDTV to go, blah, blah, blah. A lot of that crap doesn't work. Avoid USB if you can. And you want to take a look at the remote. In specific, you want a remote that's got some extra buttons on there because Linux will let you program those buttons to do whatever in the world you want, and they are bloody handy. Um, and in fact, uh, whoop. I'll bring it back that is actually the KDE infrared kicker is what they call it. It's, it's a little monitor that's running in KDE and you can configure any button on your remote to launch anything in KDE and do anything in KDE. Um, Mid-TV, not particularly pleasant to set up in most distributions. Um, that's why Mythbuntu is like actually fairly up there in distro watch. It, it's a tremendous pain in the butt. And MythTV is the reason that I left Mandrake Linux 10 back in the day and went through like 
the better part of a dozen distros before I got to Gen 2, and laughably, Gen 2, the hardest Linux distribution there is, is the only one that makes it super duper easy. <laughs> After I installed MidTV in Gen 2, it was like literally three commands to have everything up and running. Whereas, like the Fedora guy's like, gee, it's like six, ten pages, it's crazy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, it's okay, we got real good on this one. <laughs> um, it used to be you could get your TV listings from free from labs.zaptoit.com. They don't do that anymore. They claim it was because people were abusing the service. I claim it's because they're totally mismanaged and incompetent. Um, <laughs> Um, now you have to go to schedulesdirect.org. They're a nonprofit. Uh, it's 15 bucks for a year's worth of listings, but if you compare that to how much listings are for TiVo, that's a bargain. 15 bucks is what? A month or two in TiVo for listings? Anybody have a TiVo? Anybody know what TiVo is? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I get the lot. I think I paid $5. But uh, one of the one of the, the benefits to Myth TV is um, a lot of it's been built out modular, so you can separate the back end from the front end. You can have a little box in your closet that's got a bunch of tuners in it, running TV, and you can stream it over your network to any other machine. Um, in terms of what you want, in terms of hardware, um, you're you can get by with a half gig of RAM. You're going to want more. Um, if you're running just the front end, you can get by with 256 megs of RAM. Don't expect to be doing anything else while the front end's running, though. And um, you're going to want a good GPU, preferably NVIDIA, because NVIDIA, I know it's not free, blah, blah, blah. Um, NVIDIA has something called XVMC, X Video Motion Compensation, and it makes the TV look really, really good after you can it through your GPU. And uh, one last consideration you want to make when you're buying a tuner, you want a hardware encoder, that is, or a hardware decoder. That is very, very important. If you don't get a tuner that has a hardware decoder, you will be destroying your CPU just to play back the TV stream. And something like 1.5 gigahertz per stream if it's a software encoder, it's crazy. Whereas if you have a hardware decoder like my card, it's like 1% CPU, it's nothing. What's the card again used? Uh, POG TVR250, um, Google IVTV. Anything that the IVTV driver supports is a good card. You can get one on Newegg for like what, hundred bucks? That's where I got my I got uh, I got my Pog card on Newegg three or not um, on eBay for three uh, three years ago for eighty bucks. Okay, um, we'll go ahead and go to the well. Can't watch great TV very much, but as you can see, it's got <laughs> it's got a pretty powerful recording system. You can schedule like uh, you can set priorities. You can set how long you want to start before time or after time. Um, you can go through the program listings. I mean, it's very versatile. And aside from charters, really, <laughs> aside from charters, really crappy quality in my house. It's pretty good. Um, oh, so that's, that's your signal that you're getting? Unfortunately, I am like, that is at the tail end of like five or six splitters. So. <laughs> can you show us something you grab from this? Uh, yes, um, I was going to say, that's the other thing. It doesn't just do TV. Um, there's a lot of plugins, including obviously um, video, music, image, reality, games, so on. And one of the little tricks I like to do is. 
the video plugin is nothing more than sort of like a database of a folder you point to on the hard drive. So take Miro and save it somewhere within that folder, and you can sort of have Myth TV sort of aggregate all the video data you're getting through Miro and podcast or whatever. It'll integrate real nicely. And go to the video. So yeah, see there's the podcast right there. And let's see, we'll go back. This time on Act 5, this time on Act 5, we had to smooth on 2000. And is that in player playing? But the remote control works for M yeah. player, Amarok, um, XMMS, Audacious, a ton of stuff. Griffin and his new Vista security tools. What was the actual name of the title of the talk? The actual title is that literary is. How could I pull the let me count your ways? So basically that's what's smooth on. And um, yeah, tons of plugins. Um, if if your distro is out of date, you'll have MythTV 0.20. I feel sorry for whatever your distro is. A lot of the MythTV specific distros are really out of date. If you have MythTV 0.20, you're going to find a lot of the plugins are simply broke because later on in that branch they started working on 2.1, and as things broke, they didn't fix them. They're like, sorry, you're just going to have to update. Um, yeah, it's got music, image gallery, um, let you uh, see here. Um, it, it's, oddly enough, I never got in-player VLC to play a DVD complete with titles properly. I'm sure there's like some really ungodly long parameter list you have to put in to make that work. It just works with Myth TV. It'll show all the DVD menus and the controller will work with them. It's great. But, um, I, whoop, no, don't No! <laughs> But yeah, I'll take you to where you can manage your recordings, and schedule recordings, and search words, keywords. So yeah, you can like, you can search, <laughs> you knew it was coming. You can search for whatever you want. Um, it's, a, it's MySQL. Look how quick it searched through all the listings of, of anything that's coming up. It's a MySQL backup. It's pretty quick. And you can you know sort through and you can set all the recording options. Here's what I told you see. Record this showing, title, week, every week. It's ridiculous. It's it's actually got more options than the TVOs that I've played with around. And one last word of advice. Um, most people have a converter box because they have the digital tiers and cable or whatnot. There is a serial port on the back of the Charter Motorola converter boxes that is designed to work with BVR software like Myth TV. And before you go out like I did and buy a $20 USB to serial adapter and then dribble the screws off of it because it doesn't have screw holes and it's flush, <laughs> um, don't bother. Charter intentionally disabled the serial port on all their converter boxes and they will not sell you one that is enabled. Sorry. And that basically, if you call customer service and bitch, they'll say, sorry, we can sell you our PVR system on the other hand. And so, I mean, you're screwed, sorry. Um, I think that company, every time, <laughs> every time. Yep, the, the only thing you can do if you, I mean, it's, it's for people who don't know what I'm talking about, it's the same problem you have back in the day with your VHS. 
Um, your converter box wouldn't tell your VHS, uh, or your VHS wouldn't tell your converter box what channel to go change to to record. So if you recorded something on different channels, it would stay on one channel. And you get the same problem with the tuners because they don't go into the triple digit channels, the digital tiers. Um, the only solution around that is an infrared blaster, which is filthy dirty and unreliable. <laughs> I mean, all it takes is, you know, your pet moving the infrared blaster and then suddenly you're not changing channels anymore. Question? You just put a small mirror in front of it. It works fine. A mirror? <laughs> yeah. There's also the blasters that sit right in front of the IR sensor on the cable box. So that, and it is adhesively affixed there. The RF, the transmitter, so it's using RF to go into the IR. No, it's it's an IR. It's RF, so you don't you don't have to have anything. You're you're putting the you're putting the the IR transmitter. You're attaching it to an IR board, and so you're actually hitting the IR header pins. What the heck are y'all talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, what? Uh, uh, IR stands for infrared. <laughs> if light is part of the spectrum, then you just pretend to be Infrared, <laughs> ultraviolet, radios, physical. Most of the serious people I know with that TV just end up going with direct TV because they allow you to play nice with their boxes. The only other thing you should consider if you're going to get a with TV set up on your own system, um, storage. Um, live TV recording eats, I want to say, about two gigs an hour, two, two and a half gigs an hour. Can you change quality? Probably, but just standard NTSC is two, two and a half gigs an hour, much How less if you're pushing agent to MPEG 4. How long to convert it? I mean, can you can you can you transcode to MPEG four on the fly? Is it fast oh. enough to do that? That machine isn't. That's for sure. That's a Pentium four two eight. Um, maybe if you got a you know smoking fast modern system, but I doubt it. It, it does have a unofficial third party plugin called like MythWeb, and it allows you to transcode and push stuff across the network to your Myth front end instead of streaming it natively. And if you are going to stream it, you're going to want at least good, good wireless G reception. If you have even mediocre quality wireless G between the front end and the back end, give up. It's going to sputter like, you know, stop motion style. You're going to want wireless in or to just be wired straight with most stuff. And in terms of transcoding, big, beefy CPU to transcode a college like a football or baseball game on this machine. Um, out to XVID at medium quality. Um, double pass and doing all the denoise algorithms usually ends up taking me three to four times longer than the actual game run, so it'll take me like nine to twelve hours to transcode a football game. Yeah. But this is a somewhat older machine. Question. Did you say that this thing can act like a sling box? So you can work Pretty some programs at work? Pretty much. I mean, well, <laughs> it works only if you have a ridiculous upstream on your home connection. Which ridiculous. You're not going to want Charter 6 Meg with like 60K up. That's not going to hack it. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're going to want a lot more than that. Uh, even if you're pushing low quality stuff across the network, it, I mean, you'll eat, you'll eat bandwidth in a hurry unless you really transcode it down to something like it was real player in 1999 on dial up on well, that, some that myth, website. That MythWeb thing, that, that converts to Flash, doesn't it? I've heard you can watch. Recordings over 
the internet via flash? Not sure. I think that may be one of the output options. I could be wrong. Um, most of the, the transcode output options are standard old-time codecs, um, MPEG, XBIT, things like that. I thought I heard something about DirecTV uh, not having firewire ports and that being somewhat essential in a MIT-TV setup. I'm not sure if it's a firewire port. Most of the converter boxes, it's a straight serial port. And there's a, I mean, the, the actual software within Myth TV to control a converter box, I, I won't lie to you, it's not elegant, it's filthy dirty, it's like raw pearl scripts, but it works. Um, and I'm pretty sure all of it's serial port stuff. But of course, if you're around here and you're on charter, it doesn't matter how many serial ports you have, or even if you dribble the screws off of them like I did, it won't work. <laughs> you dribble the screws. Dribble the screws the, off the converter box or off no, no, not off the converter box. <laughs> off the connector. The connector had one that had the, the screws that are permanently in, and um, the serial ports flush on the back of the converter box. And so, yeah, that was fun flying little metal pieces. How did they disable it? Anybody? Probably, probably literally. They, they said, hey, Motorola, you know, as many units from Motorola as they're buying, I'm sure Motorola said, oh, sure, we'll. You know, disconnect that pathway or not solder this. Or there could very well be a simple setting in one of the chips that says no, you can't. Um, that, like, um, depending, this is a slight tangent. If you have an NVIDIA graphics card, um, take a look at NV clock, which is normally used for overclocking. If your GPU is one of the ones that was like one off from the fastest model at the time. Odds are it was the fastest model GPU coming out of the fab. It just had a slight defect. And so they sort of disabled a few things and clocked it down. But with NV clock, you can cut that stuff back on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, you, you sort of void your warranty, and if it crashes, they'll laugh at you and say, well, we told you not to do it. So. I like the, on the, on the 6000 series, they use like read the tuner to unlock um, uh, pixel shaders and things like that. Um, you know, I, I, had, I had one with, with 12 pixel shaders, but it actually had 16 on the card, and you could unlock them with three That's actually a 6600 GT in there. Huh. Well, yours probably already had all 16 unlocked, because I think I had a 6600 regular, and it had, I think it had 12, and I could go up to 16. Yeah. The, the mine was a little cheaper, because they skipped on the prints, only got 128 megs of video RAM. But plays Doom 3 great. Doesn't play stuff in Sedega that great, though. You said you were running on Jetsu, but then you mentioned Mid-Buntu? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's called Mid-Buntu. It's an Ubuntu variant that's got the TV sort of pre-installed and configured and friendly. But then you later bashed the Mid-Distro. Yeah, they tend to be out of date, and especially if they're out of date enough to be running 0, 0.20 branch, a lot of the plugins could be just totally hosed. What you got there? Run that version? Zero, that's a SVN of 0.21. You have to excuse um, Jeremy. He's a Gen Two fan, like some of us are. Actually, no, no, I'm not. I, I have this laptop was running Gen Two, and for those who are listening to Sourcecast, the little podcast I started doing, that's now running Arch. Orange, Arch, Arch, and, and that's a Slackware variant, right? That's just a Slackware variant. Not really. It's like Gen Two only without the compiler and the use flags. I, I would still keep Gen 2 on the server because the use flags are just so damn powerful. 
but I, I can see it's somewhat impractical on the desktop, but it was the only one at the time, way back when I got into Gen 2, where Myth TV wasn't like performing a root canal on myself. <laughs> and and uh, the, back then, the, a lot of the distros also didn't gracefully upgrade between releases. So every six months, I got to redo the 10-page setup guide all over again. So you can see why I might have moved to Gen 2 at the time. Have you seen this guy's or something where he's put together like a whole package that I think it actually incorporates the asterisk and uh, it will like automate your home, you know, alarm system. It's, it's got to and everything all packaged in. Uh, you, ever, you ever play with that at all? No. I've heard what he's talking about. I have pulled around with it. It's a pretty guy with a lot of effort. Uh, but for those of you who like sort of the concepts behind Gen 2, which is rolling release, a lot of software that's potentially bleeding edge. Take a look at Arch. I really like it as a desktop, actually. Um, it's not that bad. And one of the things I particularly like to boost about it is how cool this is with my laptop. Wait, this wasn't on your. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do Compass Fusion, though, because it's probably this TV. technically saying no but I know there are a lot of known fans in the room um, that, for whatever reason, don't like the look of KDE. But um, and I know this is going to look similar, but Simon says work. Simon says restart X. Figuring to do an arch, <laughs> but I was going to say they an arch. They have something called KDE mod, which is similar to how KDE is in Gen two, where it's modular. You don't install the whole big thing. You say, "Give me that, give me that, give me that," and it is the most beautiful looking KDE I have ever seen stock. It's integrated. It all looks great, and even all the known people that are like hardcore known fans that. Uh, when I show it to them, they love it. It's beautiful. It's excellent. Four or three? Right now it's three, but uh, they just released their last rev of three. Um, and if you're in Arch, you can actually go to their KDE Mod 4 um, SVN if you're insane. <laughs> um, it, it is still unstable. Basically, Gen 2 and Arch took the same position on KDE, which is KDE 4.1 will be the first release we'll offer to you that isn't like marked as unstable that you don't have to go out of your way to install. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? As an aside, kind of a commentary on lightning talks, we had uh, the gentleman who is now the lead release engineer for Gen 2 come and try and show us um, a merge world. <laughs> and hoping that it would be done in his hour and a half presentation. A merge may not be around that much longer, actually. Pollutus is getting so incredibly popular now. And who can blame you? Um, if you have a well-used Gen 2, uh, for those who don't know, the software manager in Gen 2 is called Emerge or Portage. And it's entirely Python-based. And the problem with that is once you get a well-used Gen 2 system, 
it has to go reading thousands and thousands of files to figure out what you have installed and how to upgrade and so on. And so, like, when you say a merge update world, it would take, like, 60 seconds of thinking. And Pollutus is written entirely in, I want to say C, maybe C++, and it caches everything. So when you say Pollutus update world, it's like, bam, that starts going. P-A-L-U-D-I-S, and it's not just for Gen 2. They have it where you can install it and play with it on other distros, too. But that's not the funniest name. The, um, Arch has a third-party um, software manager, too, and I, I swear to God nobody in this room could pronounce it. Y-A-O-U-R-T. I just call it yogurt. <laughs> but it's, it's really great because uh, Arch has something called AUR. Arch is a repository where anybody can submit a build, and it will go looking in AUR if it doesn't find what you're looking for. And it'll say, hey, I found this. Do you want to install it? Yes, done. Yes, Pac-Man is a stock, um, and yogurt <laughs> is is a third-party thing that it's getting pretty popular, actually. I mean, I love it. I don't use Pac-Man anymore. It does. It has all the same syntax as Pac-Man. It does all the same things as Pac-Man, only more and more friendly. And Pac-Man's that little game with a little white yellow. Guy. <laughs> yes. What is Pac-Man? Pac-Man is the package manager, package manager for Arch. Okay. Because I'm thinking Pac-Man is SUSE repository. Which is not. But if since you're the only person other in here that's uh, that maybe still has it to install it even, try Arch, you'll probably like it. Sorry, did you say it's the only one that has a boot installed? No, not yet. Oh, Gentile. Sorry. <laughs> no, software for non Sorry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Are you trying to start a framework? Yeah, on my podcast, we just reviewed Ubuntu, and uh, the, my co-host is a Debian developer in New York, and. While I thought I had some curious things to say about Ubuntu, I thought it was okay, but didn't sort of reach towards the crown of the best user-friendly distro, but it could have done more. Um, he had some really nasty things to say because this he was a Debian developer. Yes. The most user-friendly distro ever. You clearly have never installed Gen 2 if you think it's the most. You know, <laughs> <laughs> okay, the Gen 2 handbook is like 30 pages. Great learning experience, it's painful to install. You're a friend of the guy who's got PRNG or OpenSSL. Nah. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, but no, he has some legitimate beats. A lot of them do with development because he, he dabbled in Ubuntu Devil for a while and had things happen like um, the Ubuntu devs broke libc and your system wouldn't boot anymore if you were playing around with the Devil Branch. And they completely nuked sound from the kernel in the Devil Branch. Who, who I did that. I, I updated one time and my sound completely disappeared. Yes. And I would boot in one kernel, it would work, and I would boot in another kernel. Exactly. Okay, 
You know, and he had a whole bunch of stories like that of, you know, brainless stuff going on in Ubuntu Devil. I mean, who's who in Ubuntu Devil is playing around updating the kernel system? Nah, we don't need sound anymore. Well, now, now at the same time, at the same time, if you ever play around with Debian, uh, unstable, or I profess ignorance towards Debian. I've never used that. That's asking for a pearl. And I mean, any 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 uh, distros developer branch is, is going to have problems. So you go in and develop branch, you're going to have problems. Yeah, he he was understanding that his his beef was more of how incredibly boneheaded the mistakes were. <laughs> Making your system completely unbootable, certainly whoever made that change should have at least tried the package they created. Well, you know, well they knew by accident one time it's stable. And, and I, I mean, they actually, they, they did that. They released it out to, to the uh, stable package on repository. And they had thousands and thousands of users kill their, their um, X server. I like Canonical, I really do. You probably find my sort of beef with Ubuntu more practical. I want to see a rolling release in the distro where you don't have to go through a long process between releases. You just keep updating like well, an RGB I mean, to If you see a Debian testing, you can, you can do that. Yes, but that's not newbie, is it? All right, then. Okay. And, I'll, you know, ease of access of getting non-free stuff. I understand the Richard Stallman rant, but I still want to be able to install Skype if you hand it off to somebody who's never used Linux. And Richard Stallman dances across your screen and says, here's what you need to know before you have MP3 support. <laughs> they're, they're not going to be too happy using that distro. And I thought Ubuntu could have done more like Skype. I had to go to Betty Ubuntu. Right. And I'm like security paranoid. I want it to be an official repo. Why now, Skype, you can, you, can, you can turn on their um, their uh, commercial repository. They have an official commercial repository where they have a bunch of um, non-free packages. Um, in fact, it's in the sources.list, comment out. Or if you go in, in their little GUI. No, no, the third-party, I enabled third-party. Skype didn't in there. Skype, Google Earth, and a whole bunch of proprietary stuff is in Medibuntu. Uh, trust me, I know. I posted on Ubuntu forums <laughs> and got you know charaded for saying, oh, it's not official. Yeah, they, I mean, I would have wanted them to have made it easier. Like, uh, again, in Gen 2, if you install Google Earth or Skype, they're on the main mirror. You just get them. You don't have to go through any nonsense of adding another repo. Are you trying to infer that Gen 2 is newly friendly? No. I'm just trying to say that they're more practical about making stuff easier to install. Aside from the whole use place. I know it's a big what I like about depend, uh, independent repos like Adobe, they'll give you your repo file for Yum, and you can get Flash and Acro Adobe Acrobat, and you know who you're getting it from. With the distributed repos you're talking about, yeah, exactly. Ah, and that, know, that's I, one of the I things. Don't think, I don't think I'd like Google Earth to be hacked up by exactly. this guy over here. Exactly. That, that was my concern about the Ubuntu repository. And that's what I like about Gen 2 and Arch. Gen 2, it's on the main mirrors, and Arch, AUR, the user repository, you can see it fetching from the official source. Can you understand where they're coming from, though, with the respect of that? Is that a lot of these packages are, oh, I understand. are not, are not uh, you know, legally allowing them to repackage. I, I totally understand that, but I mean, why make everybody go search for it and go add a repo? Why not just say, 
you know, during the install time. Here, do you want support for MP3s? And you click yes, and it gives you a little pop-up saying, you know, blah, 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 blah. Okay, and you can install it anyway. They could make it easier is what I'm saying. Um, as, as far as MP3s, that has gotten world better over the last, you know, year and a half. If, if, you, if you do a brand new install of Ubuntu, open up Amarok and open it. That's just um, my classic act of habit example. Google uh, Earth, Skype, you name it. Okay. Wow, I expected it to be much worse for hammering Ubuntu. <laughs> well, thank you very much. That was, that's cool. All right, has anybody got any questions on anything else? Sir? Shall we adjourn? Free monitor to good home, minus the speakers. I'm glad all y'all uh, new guys came here. This is uh, great to see some of you new faces. Um, um, the dues are $10 to me before you leave. And, uh, wow. You lowball that so much. Uh, but uh, so this is uh, Linux U script. Come back next month and we'll see you and, and y'all have fun. <laughs>